Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 5th, 2018, and this is episode 2175 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Monday, that means it's a listener feedback show. This is where you guys send me email. You send that email to jack at the Survival Podcast. Dot com And you need to put TSPC in the subject line, as though it's a word, TSPC, and then question for Jack, comment for Jack, idea for Jack, Jack, you're a jerk. It doesn't matter what you put there. If you put TSPC there, I'll see it sooner or later. Sometimes I get lazy with digging stuff out of the spam box, but sooner or later, you know, when the number of spam emails gets up to around 5,000, no, I'm not kidding, then I'll go throw TSPC in a filter and pull out everything that has that and uh, catch up with the people that I've missed. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? We got a bunch of stuff lined up. I have a, a segment on the slaying of debt. Uh, <clears throat> I have a question. What is the opposite of a snowflake? I also have the best states to find remote jobs in. That's a pretty useful list to have. More on planting a pond and pond management. This is from the uh, one that I took Thursday last week where the voicemail got cut off. I got some more information from that person. One more time, yes, you have to pay tax on cryptocurrency trading, and we'll talk about how that might actually look if you do it. Uh, more on the problems our youth have, suicide, guns, and more. Growing hops in a food forest, and I'll tell you an alternative to that as well. And what I'm calling the saga of the F-350 and modern indentured servitude. <laughs> Some of you that follow me on Facebook personally or in our special members-only group already know where that's going to go. And I have a kitchen update and an announcement about Bill Tong for breakfast coming soon. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Hey, I got an announcement first. Jeff has a new discount code coming out for you guys for 10% off all Berkey systems. Uh, I have been a piker, I guess, to a degree. This has been brutal this last couple weeks, guys. So uh, I'll, I'll make my excuses with that. But I will uh, be getting that discount code into the MSB. If you want to take advantage of that before I get off my butt and get it done, you can email me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com, put TSPC Berkey in the subject line, and I'll get that code to you because I do have the code. Anyway, Jeff is an awesome dude, and if you want a Berkey system, you don't want to get it from some guy at a gun show that got into water filters last week because he heard prepping was a hot industry. He kind of missed the boat anyway, didn't he, on the real height of it around 2012, 2013. Um, but you want to get it from somebody that has that lifelong relationship with the Berkey people themselves. If anything goes wrong, you know they're going to make it right. You want somebody that's a maniac of customer service. You want somebody that's loyal to this audience and this show and the work that we do here. And that's Jeff. He's been with us over seven years as a sponsor. You want a guy that's going to get you the best pricing available on Berkey Systems. And since Jeff is about the biggest dealer of Berkey Systems in the country, that's the guy you're looking for. You can find him at directive21.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. Look, guys, I, I really think that we would have less problems as a whole if parents did more projects with children. And we'll be talking about that a little bit today. 
And one of the projects you could do with your kiddos is to get a knife and build a knife together. That teaches them basic skills and hand, you know, uh, basically how to use hand tools and, and it unleashes the creative process. And it can turn into a, a lifelong hobby or even a small side business or maybe even something bigger. You can learn about all different ways to build knives the easy way at KnifeKits.com. They also have good stuff for making your Kydex holsters, all kinds of other great stuff. And they do do a discount for members of the MSB. They're at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. The year is the year 107. I have Infrastructure and Devaluation, contributed by David Verne. With the Empire at Peace, Emperor Tragen embarks on an even more ambitious infrastructure program than originally planned. Old roads were repaired, new roads were built, and bridges were built across rivers that used to be uncrossable. A new forum was built in Rome to alleviate the congestion problems that clogged the city's roads and markets. The harbor at Ostia, a coastal harbor acted as Rome's port, was dredged and expanded, bringing an end to the grain supply issues that had been plaguing the city. The construction was funded by the spoils from the Dacian campaign and a devaluation in the currency. Trajan decreased the silver content of the Nereus from, uh, from 93.5 to 89% silver. My take by David Verne. Trajan was an example of how beneficial and effective an absolute ruler could be, and was a perfect example of a benevolent despot. To Trajan, power wasn't something to flaunt or use to have a good time. It was something to be used to better the lives of his subjects. Nerva, Trajan, and the next three emperors all used this philosophy while ruling and led the empire to the height of its power and prosperity. However, this mindset is extremely rare among rulers. The vast majority of the time... Absolute power is used to control people and is used only to benefit the person in charge. As the saying goes, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And I would say absolutely. It's, it is a weird thing, though. I mean, you wonder why a person that became, let's say, emperor of Rome at this time wouldn't just say, you know what? I'm going to do the best job I can. I'm going to do the best job I can as emperor. Because where do you, ha like, see, so generally the reason that people do things that are malevolent when it comes to power is they want more of it, and they want more. So you now are, at the time, the most powerful person in the world. Actually, you know, eliminate what we can do with modern technology, but in many ways far more powerful than the President of the United States. You don't have to stand for re-election. You got nowhere to go but down, either you know deposed or dead. Why would a person in that position, with ungodly wealth, with everything that they could ever want, be an asshole? Right? I guess you had to be an asshole to get there in many instances. But and if you think about it, and I'll tell you why, it's not actually that hard to figure out. Most people that won't go beyond what's necessary to, to do a job like this, don't want it in the first place. They don't want power. They don't want to tell other people how to live. They don't want to tell other people what to do. They want to go on about their life and be left the hell alone. And the majority of people that do want power like this are psychopaths. They're sociopaths. So then you have to ask yourself, is Trajan and these these what they'll become known as the five good emperors Are they not sociopaths? Or are they, are they very intelligent sociopaths that know the best way to maintain their power 
is to at least look like they're doing the best they can for their, their empire and for their people. Which one is it? My gut is it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. And I think we also have seen over time in Rome anyway, and I think we've seen it in other kingdoms and other, other empires, the younger that a person comes to power in general the worse things work out. And maybe there's some lesson there with the whole concept of when is it a person an adult? I don't know. We'll see as we cruise through today. So next to today, let me remind you real quick before we get started <clears throat> that if you uh, want to uh, support our show, you can become a member of the MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. And if you join and use the discounts that are in the membership program, your discount, your, your, your membership will pay for itself, and you'll be supporting the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, let's get into it. Um, my first one is on debt. This one comes from uh, Jen, and Jen says, I'd like to thank you for encouraging me to eliminate my debt. I didn't have much debt to start with, but I make very little money. I do housekeeping and started selling my art, <clears throat> though I'm still learning to run a business profitably, but the hours of my housekeeping job got cut back last year, and it threw me through a loop. My finances changed, but my spending stayed the same. I went from no debt to a maxed-out credit card. It was only $2,000, but for me, that's far too large a number. Jen, that's too large a number for anybody to be on a credit card debt, unless it's a it's like a revolving thing where it gets paid off every month because you have to travel for work and you get reimbursed. Unless that's what it is, it's too much for anybody. Nobody should have any kind of debt load on a credit card. So let me continue now. After hearing how much debt you were in and how how, how debt made makes you a slave, I was really inspired to tackle my problem. I should be completely debt-free in a month or two and couldn't be happier. Thank you. Well, you know, it made me realize when I read this, I haven't talked about this subject in a very long time. And I think the reason is I've lived debt-free for so long now, other than, you know, our house, that I've kind of, you know, forgotten how big a deal it is to, to not be saddled with that debt. Uh, but on the other hand, I haven't forgotten. That's why I have not gone back into debt. And it made me realize maybe I should, you know, because obviously Jen went back and listened to some old episodes. So maybe I should just kind of give the recap of where I was in 2008 when I started doing this show debt-wise. I was already debt-free, except my house. But I was newly debt-free. It was about 2005 that Dorothy and I looked at each other and looked at her debt and said, no, just we're just not doing this anymore. We had well over $30,000 worth of debt. Plus, we owed money at that time on two vehicles. And that was in addition to about $30,000 plus in uh, various forms of debt, but most of it credit card debt. Yes, Jack Spierko at once was a credit card junkie. I bought all kinds of shit. And, you know, my story is not that much different than Jen's, other than she started out with I didn't make a lot of money. I see I was making a ton of money. I was making a shit ton of money. And then I made a career change. And that career change took me from making a shit ton of money to making a reasonable income for about a year and a half. And it was not changing my spending habits during that period of time that saddled me with that debt. And what I realized was by 2005, those days were, that, that transition was way behind me. I had no excuse. I was back to making really good money again. But I just was unwilling to clean up the mess. So what we did, and this is, I think, one of the most important things you can do to understand how important it is to become free of your debt 
and what that really costs you. We sat down and we looked at it. And we said if we keep living this way and we don't go any further into debt, we don't put anything else on a credit card, and we just keep making the payments as we're making them, how long will it take us before we're free of this debt if we just make the minimum payments and, and keep going? And it was something like 20 years. And I went and said, you know what? I know what we need to do. It's called the snowball, and it's from a guy named Dave Ramsey. And here's how it works. We need to take the smallest one of these debts and pay it off as quickly as we can. We need to pay the minimum on everything else until the smallest one is gone. Every additional penny we can put onto this little debt has to go. And that little debt was small enough that we had some money in the bank, and we just paid it off that day. And the next month, we took all the money that would have went to that debt, and we put it on the next debt. And then that debt went away really, really fast. And then what happened was it started to go faster and faster and faster, just like Dave Ramsey says it does. And the biggest debt was the one we did last. It was the one we paid off the fastest because we had all of the power built up from all the other debts that were paid off added on to it. And then you know what happened? We got all that debt paid off. We had this, this thing called disposable cash. We had extra money that we didn't know what to do with, so we started saving it. And then that next month, the next month after we had paid off all of that nasty debt, Dorothy came to me and said, you know, I got good news. And I said, well, what? She goes, on our truck, which was the blue Dodge that went away a couple of years ago because some dumbass hit us in a rainstorm. Um, she said, we owe right only about $3,000 on the Dodge. I said, that's great. Let's write a check for $3,000 and pay it off. So what? I mean, we had just been through this shit, right? We had just been through churning out all this debt, making the sacrifices, and we had started to stockpile cash. And she said, what? I said, well, just pay it off. We don't like debt anymore, remember? And she started making a case on why we shouldn't do that. So <laughs> I just waited for her to finish and said, so let me tell you, I want to know if uh, if we didn't owe any money on that truck. And, and Chrysler sent us a letter that said we could borrow $3,000 against us and offered the exact same payments that we have right now, and we'd pay it back in about nine months. If we took the loan, would we take that loan? She said, no, I don't think we would. I said, then explain to me what the difference is. And she got that look. Only a woman can. Men cannot do this look. At least most men can't. You know, the eye roll that almost takes them into another dimension. And then a, a lot of thought and a lot of consideration about what to say. And then my wife, who does cuss on occasion but almost never uses the F word, said, F it, I'll pay it, <laughs> turned a little bit red and walked around and went and wrote a check. And at that point, we had no debt on any vehicles. We had no debt on anything. We were done. And it was all because, and, and this is the thing, we will never, ever ever go back. And when you realize when you when you work your way out of that type of a debt trap how enslaved you are. And once you realize that you won't do it in the first place. And I hate to say it, I think a lot of people will never be able to do it until they go ahead and do it to themselves. And it amazes me how quick people are to go into debt today, how how willing they are, how how easily they are marketed to with. It's only X dollars a month. Yeah, for six years or ten years or whatever. You know, I have a family member that was getting ready to buy a new car. And I said, have you considered leasing? And they said, well, no. So I explained the whole thing. They said, well, that makes sense. And I said, listen, 
sometimes leasing is a smart choice and sometimes it's not. It all depends on the vehicle, uh, what the terms are, or what your interest rates are, and what have you. And uh, But what you need to do is go talk to the dealership and ask them to give you your options for purchase and for lease. Then bring me your options. I will put them into a spreadsheet for you. And then you'll understand exactly what the cost basis analysis is, and you'll be able to make the most informed decision possible. And they said, oh, okay. And then a week later, I was talking to my wife and said, well, did they buy the vehicle? And she said, yep. <sighs> okay. What did they do? They leased it, they bought it. Oh, she bought it. Okay. What did they get? Well, I don't know exactly, but she told me the payment. It was pretty high for the vehicle that it was. And I said, and, and, and so would they finance it for like four years, you know, or three years? And that's why, no, six years, 72 freaking months. 72 freaking months of debt on a depreciating asset without even knowing if there was a better option because, well, I want to own it. I'm sorry, it owns you now. And this was the other part of that conversation I had with him. Listen, technology is changing so quickly that. Six years from now, a vehicle made today, you may not be able to get jack shit for it. Because it's, the, and I don't think either one of them believe me. I just don't think they believe me. Well, we'll see. All I know is I don't like being in debt for six freaking years for a thing that goes down in value. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, this one comes from Christina. Christina says, what is the opposite of a snowflake? A young person with a good head on their shoulders who understands the reality of the world and doesn't feel entitled and understands trophies are for winners. I'm looking for a single word or a short phrase. This is a serious question. Maybe an object that when it was made is a great tool, but as it ages, it gains a nice patina and sharper edge. It becomes slightly better over time, if that makes sense. I posted those couple Facebook pages that has most people stumped. Several have answered with things like normal or adult or responsible or common sense. Christina, I think they're right. We'll continue, though. That wasn't really what I was looking for. Some other answers that were more in the vein of what I was seeking were flint, anvil, diamond, or oak tree. But those aren't really resonating. Do you have any ideas? The only thing I could come up with was leather. I have an idea for a website or book series for teens or adults. Teen prepper or youth prepper or junior prepper just aren't doing it for me. I love to find a world that encapsulates the mindset of a young person who is the opposite of a snowflake. I've spent time with a thesaurus, but I haven't hit on something that really speaks to me. More importantly, would speak to young people I'm talking about. I have a word for you, but it's not the highly marketable term that you're looking for. It's not like teacup kid, you know, for the weak kid. It's resilient. The word you're looking for is resilient. The trait that we are trying to teach our children is resiliency. And I'll save it for the end because I'll tell you a story that happened on my farm head recently. But I, I said to him when I was counseling him after this major mistake where he thought I was going to chop his head off and kill him, and I was being a kind, more grandfatherly person than I could have been when I was 25, had the same thing happened. Do you know what resiliency is? And he said no. 19 years old, college student, does not know what the word resiliency even means. Resiliency is the ability of a system or an organism or an animal or an entity or a person to recover after facing adversity, for it to be able to reestablish itself when something sets it back, or for it to stand when something attacks it without being damaged or being damaged so ineffectively 
that it never really comes off track. The word you're looking for, Christina, is resiliency. And that is the, and I, and I don't have the marketing term. But if I did, you know, you said oak tree. I don't know that the word would be the highly marketable word that you're looking for. But the tree that I think we should be teaching people to be like is the willow tree, not the oak. The oak is tall and mighty and strong. And many people are tall and mighty and strong, but not everybody can be. Some people will be weak some in comparison to the average. But guess what? The strong, tough guy, there's probably a list a mile long of people that can whoop his ass. So that's the way the world works. No matter how tough you are, no matter how strong you are, no matter how much you can do, there's someone that can do more. There's very few people that are the best of the best, you know, all around in everything. It being one in exactly in each category, I guess. And when the wind does blow strong enough to damage the oak tree, it's usually catastrophic. It takes the oak tree in the mightiest oak in the right conditions, snaps like a twig. And it's pretty much gone. But the willow bends. The willow will bend to the point where it looks like it's touching the ground like a bow. The leaves of the willow will be stripped off. Some of the branches will break. But in the end, the willow will stand. And as long as its roots have grown deep enough, it will grow back again and again. In fact, a willow tree is a relatively shortly-lived tree. On average, 15 to 30 years. But the willow that is broken and grows back and broken and grows back or cut and grows back and cut and grows back can often live a lot longer. It's almost as if being challenged makes the tree live longer. That's the trait you're looking for. What the word is, the marketable word, I don't know. But Christina, sometimes... The word that you're looking for when you want to market something is the honest word. And the honest word here is resiliency. It is the number one thing missing not just in our children, but in our young adults and even our middle-aged adults. I've talked to a lot of people that are in their 30s, and I would not call them resilient people. I am 45 years of age myself, and I have contemporaries that are right at my age. And I would say of the people that I, I know from my past, people who served in the military, about half of them, about half of my generation are people that I would say are highly resilient. And the other half, quite lacking. And I, it doesn't surprise me then that we have 15 and 18 and 20 and 25-year-olds today that are completely non-resilient, that are teacups. That are snowflakes. And you can blame the university system all you want, but I, I, I will only say that the universities are a symptom of the disease. They are not the cause. The, the child's first teacher is the parent. The primary example that the child follows is that of the parent. We have parents that are saying all the right things, but doing all the wrong things, and guess what your kids will pay attention to? What you do. How you act. How you, how you are with money. They're like sponges. They suck up everything. Resiliency. A willingness to fight when you have to, but avoid it unless there's no other choice. But always having it as an option. I will fight you if I have to fight you. And that's symbolic and absolutely concrete as well. I don't have 
the word. But I will tell you this. It's not iron or steel. It's not stone or oak. It's something like the willow that gives, that bends, but always comes back. The honest word, Christine, is resiliency. Let's take another one. This one comes to us from John. John says, another for walking to freedom. The 15 states with the most jobs you can do remotely. Surprisingly, 95% of remote jobs actually have a geographic requirement. Read the full story. And it's over at Apple News. Uh, actually, it's NBC News. I don't know why it says CNBC. Uh, the 15 states with the most jobs you can do remotely. Here they are in order. Number 15, Ohio. Number 14, Washington. Number 13, New Jersey. Maybe I should give you guys the companies that are hiring in these states that are primarily hiring anyway. Um, Agolan, uh, this is Ohio. Agolan, uh, Jones, Lang, LaSalle, and Xerox. Washington, uh, Great Au whoever the hell that is, K-12, and State of Washington. New Jersey, companies hiring remote workers. Amazon, Citizens Bank, and Gartner. Minnesota companies hiring revert, uh, remote workers, Abbott, Carlson, Wagon Lift Travel, Haynes and Company. Number 11, Massachusetts companies hiring remote workers include Acceleration Partners, Kaplan and Salesforce. Number 10, Arizona uh, companies hiring remote workers include Equifax, Grand Canyon University, GCU and Kellogg Company. North Carolina is number 9 with Amgen, Lowe's, PPD Pharmaceutical Product Development. Georgia, number eight, companies hiring include First Data, First Serve, Robert Half International. Robert Half's a builder, if I remember right. Uh, Pennsylvania, companies hiring remote workers include McCresson Corporation, PNC, and SAP. Number six is Illinois. Companies hiring remote workers include Goodway Group, Molina Healthcare, and Pearson. Uh, number five is Florida. Companies include Humana, the Hartford United Healthcare Group. New York, companies hiring include Accenture, American Express, and Teach for America. Number three, Virginia, companies hiring include American Red Cross, CVS Health, and Lidios. In Texas, companies hiring include Teradata, Wells Fargo, and Williams-Sonoma. And number one, <clears throat> believe it or not, California, Red Hat, um, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and ULTA. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Like your your top two company uh, states for doing this are diametrically different. California is is just a blue Democrat state, and and Texas is you know a Republican hardcore Republican state, uh, very much leans GOP, except for Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin, and parts of Houston. Um, and I know people say, well, that's the same thing with California. No, it's not. No, it's not because the in California there's enough people that are that are liberal in those cities to outweigh the entire rest of the state. And in Texas, those cities only go Democrat by about 60-40. And in the rest of the state, it's more like 90-10. Uh, so they're very, very different states from a, from a political standpoint. Uh, Texas has no income tax. California has a high income tax. Texas doesn't have a corporate income tax. It has a very, very small uh, franchise tax for companies that are incorporated in Texas. It's, it's really low. It's almost an insignificant portion of operations. California companies are taxed at some of the highest rates in the country. So you wonder what, what's going on. Why would these two companies be one and two, or two states be one and two in this, this similar metric? Well, 
I'll tell you what I think it is, and I could be wrong. I haven't done a lot of research on this. California is one of the most expensive states to live in. And if you're going to live in L.A., San Francisco, etc., the more you live toward the downtown area where these big companies are, uh, Silicon Valley, etc., the more it costs to live there. But if you can work from home and you can live another 30, 40, 50 minutes out, then your cost of living goes down and therefore you're willing to work for less. And then there's an overhead that, that, that people don't realize. Like It actually costs me less, as long as you're doing your job, for you to work from home than it does for me to provide you an office space in one of these expensive cities. So I think it's a pure cost-saving mechanism in California. And how do we get people to do this work? We can throw this carrot out. Uh, Texas, on the other hand, is booming so heavily. It actually, And don't think I'm bragging. This actually scares me. Because when, when a state grows like this, eventually the brakes get put on, and it really hurts when it happens. But Texas is, is, is so desperate for people, period. Like we, if you don't have a job in the state of Texas, you're not trying hard enough. From from you know, an 18 year old high school graduate, if you if you're good enough to be able to swing a hammer, you can find a job somewhere and get started. And I'm not saying you're going to be rich, but you'll get started and you start a path uh, up to high level people. If you want a job in the state of Texas, you can find a job. Literally, it's, it's, I hate when people say this, but it's, it's almost like everybody is hiring. Everybody's hiring. You can get something to get started with. And so the in-demand positions, they're willing to you know, do whatever they can to, to get you. What really gets me is how diverse the companies are that are willing to do this in different states. Now, why would these companies have a geographic requirement? If you can work from home, why would, let's say, a company in California say that you have to live in California? makes their life easier in dealing with the state of California. Every time you put a new employee in a new state, you have to deal with all kinds of shit. So sometimes it's just a convenience issue for the company, and if you say, well, you have to live in the state, well, then there's less to deal with, or within one of two or three states. The other thing is companies are only going to let people be so remote and unchecked on, and they usually have people come in once a month, maybe one week a, you know, a month, or maybe two days a month or something like that, to some kind of meeting or something like that, and they want to be able to get some level of oversight. And then sometimes it's just the standpoint of, you know, we just, we just aren't comfortable with somebody working in another time zone because that's not good for you know, team dynamics or whatever bullshit. But I'll tell you the secret. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit when it comes to the whole geographic requirement. Geographic requirements with a company are like educational requirements and experience requirements with a company. That is a filtering mechanism to rapidly sort through a pool of candidates. When you are a candidate with a resume that the person looking at the resume does not know by reputation and name, all those requirements are actually requirements. When you are someone the company is coming to and seeking to do a job and your reputation precedes you, you can get a company to do almost anything to hire you as long as you ask for it before, not after they hire you. Now, it is within reason. If the, if the job you're doing is a type of job that the top level person in it, the highest, you know, 10% earn about 120,000 and you're asking for 500,000, they're not going to do that. Probably because they don't have the budget. But you know what? Even though the top people in it make, let's say 110, I bet you can get 130 to 140. 
Why? Because they haven't got you yet. And I, I think it's, I don't care if you're interviewing for a $14 an hour job or a $140,000 a year job. You need to understand that you are never more wanted than five minutes before you sign on. And you need to get everything you can going in. That doesn't mean that if they don't give it all to you, you don't go. If it's the right move, you go. But that's the most valuable thing. I'm telling you, it can add tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earnings to be willing to say, that's not enough, I need more. Or, you know, it's a very generous offer, but I'll, I'll have to consider it because I think I might have other opportunities that might be able to do a little bit more for me financially. I love the job, love the op even if you don't. I love the job, I love the opportunity. I would really like to work with you, but I'm just not sure about this. I'll have to take it into consideration. I can give you an answer Monday if this is like a Friday, that type of thing. It's amazing. So let me see if I can go back and get you a little bit more. Yeah, why don't you do that? That might make it a little bit less that I need to consider before I make a decision. And I want you to think about if every job that you ever got, because you understood this, you earned on average 10% more in that job starting out. Well, what would that do to your lifetime earnings? Well, a minimum would be 10% more. The average person makes well in excess of a million dollars in their lifetime. They don't keep it, but they make it. Even a person that makes $50,000 a year for 20 years earned a million dollars. 10% more is $100,000 in additional earnings invested over those 10 years puts that person in a pretty good state of retirement. All because you're willing to ask for more before you say yes. Biggest piece of advice I can give you, whether it's working remote, making more money, always ask for everything you could possibly want going in because even if they say no... It makes them want you more. I know that sounds crazy, but the easiest way to get a job is to not need one. I mean, seriously, when you don't need a job and the company feels like they need you. And then the other thing that I've always tried to make people feel just a little bit when I've been negotiating with them about working with them. I want that person to think, I do not want this person to go work for my direct competitor. I don't want that. More than I, more than I want them, you know, more than I, I want them, but what I want more is for them to not go work against me. And I'll tell you why. When I was running companies and I was hiring people, whether or not I was willing to hire them, I always asked myself that question. And if I, if I, if I didn't give a shit if they worked for my competitor, then I would pay the market rate and not a penny more. But if I thought to myself, no, I don't want this person working for, if I, you know, if I'm Spacely Sprockets, and I don't want this guy working for Cogswell Cogs, then if it's reasonable, I will make the deal with them. That's who you're trying to be when you're interviewing for a job. So the reason I spent so much time on this is, one, I want you to make as much money as you can, because that's a good thing, assuming you're doing the same work. All right, I'm not saying go kill yourself for a dollar, because that's not good. Um, but assuming you're going to do the same work, and you can get more for it than you should. That's just common sense. And I think that this remote working is the number one step toward freedom for so many people. Because what it'll do, see, I did a lot of the years that I did work, and I had a job. I worked like this, but I was in sales, and it kind of was required to do it. But it was why I eventually realized I have to have something that's a lifestyle business like I have now. I can't go to an office. When I made that career change I talked about earlier today, 
I had to go to an office again. I still worked from home three days a week on that job. And three became four, and then I usually went in once a week to get some shit done, right? And it was the same thing. You know, like, I can do this, but I don't, I, you guys are so far, it's a long drive, I don't know. You know, had a job, didn't, you know, so, um, but when you, when I had to go to that office at first, that first, and for like, for the first couple weeks, I was there every day, and I had a cubicle, I had a cubicle, I had a boss that actually came and saw me and said, what are you doing? I had meetings I had to go to. Like, you know, I had to dress a certain way. I couldn't just use my cell phone to make a call whenever I wanted to. I was like, this sucks. And, you know, it was still a kind of a fun place to work in some ways. But uh, I, I will never go back to that. And I think that if you can get into remote work then the, the, the minimum level of threshold you will then go to is, well, then if I'm not going to own a business, then I'm going to work remotely. And it's a funny thing, funny thing. Once you make a determination like that, somehow you always have a way of getting it done. Now, you might at some point in your life in a crunch have to capitulate, but you will be, like I always talked about being a pig or being the, the cow, The cow is, is easy to domesticate. The cow won't leave. The, the, the fence can rust down, and if the cow has previously encountered the fence, they won't even challenge it again. The pig will look for one opening and be out. You'll be that feral hog, man. You might take that job for a little while, but you're going to be looking, and you're going to be waiting for that opportunity to get back into a situation with more control of your life. Anyway, let's take another one. This is our follow-up from last week from Mike, who called in the question and got cut off on the pawn. He said, thank you for answering my question that was cut short. You're definitely headed down the right path, despite technological snaps. So a little background. December, we bought 19 acres in the bustling metropolis of Barry, Texas. That's that tongue-in-cheek there. For some reason, we figured if a hippie duck farmer could build a homestead, we could do. We're planning on putting in a food forest, fruit and nut trees, and shooting a bunch of hogs. Um, there's a stock tank, but being a native Yankee, I refer to as a pond. At capacity, it's about a quarter of an acre. Drops probably by half of that at the end of summer. I'm guessing the depth somewhere fluctuates between 8 to 12 feet. It's currently devoid of vegetation. We don't plan on keeping livestock that would use it and would like it to serve a greater purpose than emergency irrigation. Your ideas around water chestnuts and lotus are intriguing. Also, while I have your attention, we'd like to stock some fish in as a complete ecosystem, possibly more to keep vegetation and mosquitoes in balance. Ideas would be awesome. Again, thanks for your insight and direction, Mike. Okay, so for fish, probably your best bet for having a, a, a yield that you can harvest is going to be catfish and going to a hatchery type situation and, and, and you know throw a few hundred, to four or five hundred channel cats in there and feed them. I mean, basically, you have a little fish farm sitting there if you do that. And they're not going to be hard on vegetation. So um, you can have some vegetation without them destroying it. I'm, based on what you just told me, I'm going to stick to things like water chestnuts, reeds, your emergent vegetation. Here's your issue that I see. You have a quarter acre that goes down to basically what you're telling me is, uh, uh, what, would, what would you said it goes down by half like 0.125 acres if it really is half that's a that's a shoreline that's receded a lot so the problem is some of that emergent vegetation is going to then be on dry ground so you have to think about like when you say it gets smaller how where, where does that water line end up 
And your primary, if you're going to do something like water lotus, lily pads, water chestnut, needs to be at that kind of edge point. Next thing is you tell me that you, you would guess it's 8 to 10 feet. Your Yankee is showing. Um, I, I hope you're right. That's fantastic. If you have a quarter-acre stock tank that when it's full is 8 feet deep, glory, glory, hallelujah. It would not surprise me if it's about four to four and a half feet deep. And you want to probably get a calculation on your total water volume, and you need to know this. So I'm going to tell you the super cheap Jack Spearco way to find out how deep your pond is, especially a quarter-acre pond. You can cast out about as far as you're going to ever need to in a quarter-acre pond. You're going to get yourself a big old bobber, big old red and white bobber, like you see the guy takes his kid fishing, and poor guy wants his kid to catch a fish and doesn't know how to catch a fish himself, and he's got like a bobber the size of like a baseball, and they're trying to catch a bluegill that's about could fit in your, your shirt pocket and not even make a dent on it, right? And you need a bobber like that. And you need a, a, a casting sinker, like two-ounce sinker, something big enough to make that bobber sink, okay? And then you're going to set that bobber, let's say, at like six foot, And you're going to cast out way out to where you think the pond's the deepest. You're going to watch down to that bobber. And if that bobber stays on the top, well, you know that you ain't six feet, you ain't more than six feet deep. Let's say bobber goes under. So now we're going to reel it back in. We're going to put the bobber up about two feet. And we're going to lob that sucker back out there again. And we're going to do that until we see the bobber stay above the surface. And we're going to figure out where it sinks. And then we know how deep the pond really is. That's a, that's a pretty simple way. You can get a boat and a stick. Or you can, you can go out there and swim around if you want to. It's kind of cold this time of year. But one way or another, you need to get an actual estimate on the depth of, of, of the water. And you want to know what the depth of that water is in the summer, too. Because if you get too shallow in that summer and you've overstocked it, then you can have fish kill and the whole thing turn into a rancid, stinking mess. Ask me how I know. Um, if you have a way to do this, getting a really good aeration system into there would be a great idea. The other thing I would say is I would like more resiliency. We've had that word today a couple times. I'd like more resiliency in your water. So if you can look at the way the land lays, if there's the ability to put a catchment swale and attach a catchment swale, and this has to be done by someone that knows what they're doing, but if you can actually increase the catchment, and sometimes this is easy, sometimes this is impossible, sometimes it doesn't make any sense. A lot of times here in Texas, I mean, The people that run farms and ranches here in Texas are pretty good at being smart about water. And they'll look for a thing that already is shaped like a bowl. And then down at the bottom of that bowl, they'll just dig a hole. And if they're in where the red or the black clay is, you pretty much just dig a hole and then roll it with your machine. And then it just fills up with water. I mean, that, that, that's a stock tank. And that's usually what they do. They, try, they don't generally hold water high in a system, which is where swells really pay off. So if you're already down in the middle of a bowl, there's probably not a lot of swelling to do to increase your catchment. But if you're on some sort of like a gentle slope, and that slope goes out laterally to either side, and you can put a single or a dual swale system in that increases that catchment, then your, your pond is going to stay higher longer. Please do not do this without getting help if you don't know exactly how to do it. And the fact that you're not already thinking about doing it means you probably don't. You can mess it up. You might be better off doing nothing. You need someone to look at it that knows what the hell they're doing. If you want a referral to somebody, I got a great guy. You already know his name. His name's Nick Ferguson. I'm sure he'd be willing to consult with you on that level of earthwork and if it makes sense. 
And if you got the, the kind of land I think you do based on where you are, well, that machine was there, you could probably put two or three more ponds in for almost no extra money. I mean, small, quarter-acre-style ponds are easy to do, and a couple of them chained together by a swale system really starts to increase the resiliency of the system. So that might be something to consider. I am not even really going to get heavy with more planting um, and fish stocking things here because, again, if you have a four-foot instead of an eight-foot-deep pond that reduces its volume by half in its surface area, it's reducing its water it's actual water in gallons by probably 65 to 70% when you see that surface area reduced by 50%. And we're not sure that it's really 50%. This is your, this is your swag, your statistical wild-ass guess. So I think you need to get a handle on what the volume of water is. And if you're going to manage a fish population in it, you've got to manage the fish population to the low tide, not the high tide. And what can we do to increase resiliency? If you're on a well, you can pump water to it. I mean, I have a disaster of a little pond I tried to put in because I flipping wanted it. And I'm probably not going to do shit with it this year. It's probably going to be next year because so many other things. But I'm going to pound a big old berm around it, throw a rubber liner in it, do what I can to channel some catchment into it. But in the end, I'm going to put a freaking float valve on it. You know, it's not going to be anywhere near as big as yours. It'll probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 50,000 gallons. But it'll hold fish. It'll be great when I get to it. And so there's there's ways to do that. So that's something else to think about, you know. Because um, you don't have to do it constantly. If you, you know, if you, if you put in 500 gallons every other day, you know, depending on the size of the pond, that can do a lot to just keep it just, it ain't going to keep it at high tide, but... You know, it can keep it from getting into that catastrophic low oxygen level. So that's something to think about as well. So get some better numbers on what you're dealing with. And again, manage to the low tide, not the high tide. Next up, John John says, what are the tax implications for selling or exchanging cryptocurrencies? Details, I'm new to the cryptocurrency world, and I'm under the impression one reason the public likes crypto is government doesn't is because of its users can remain anonymous. I may be wrong, but that got me thinking if there are tax implications for selling and exchanging cryptocurrencies. The answer to that would be yes. I did a quick Google search for crypto tax implications, found the IRS treats crypto as property, wants you to treat profits as capital gains. I also saw a comment stating each individual should keep up with their cost bases, determine profits and loss from each transaction. My immediate thought is, yeah, right. I don't foresee users manually keeping spreadsheets of every transaction and reporting it to the IRS. How should a responsible citizen that doesn't want to pay any more than his fair share of taxes required by law handle any hypothetical gains or laws created by cryptocurrencies? Thanks, John. Well, you actually had your own answer of what you're supposed to do. Now, here's the reality. It's almost impossible to do what they want, and they know it. In the end, you're going to declare a basis on your cryptocurrency when you sell it or exchange it. When you change one crypto into another, you're supposed to pay tax on it. That was called a like-kind exemption, and it was a gray, murky area until this year. The tax bill that Trump got done... Uh, had a lot of stuff in it that nobody really talked about. And one of them was that there is no, it, it, like, was there, we don't know, maybe, kind of, sort of, you know, you could probably get away with it, like-kind exemption for crypto. It basically says there's no, there isn't. If you change Ethereum into Bitcoin, it's the same as changing Bitcoin into cash. I think they're wrong, but they're going to enforce their will on you with, you know, 
men with guns and handcuffs and stuff. So you got to pay it. Now, do you do I think that every person out there that that has a transaction that they don't report is going to get busted by the IRS? No. In fact, I said the vast majority of that type of crypto to crypto, especially one or two off from a cash transaction, it's it's got some some ability to be somewhat anonymous. But understand this: you go to you go to uh, Coinbase and you buy Bitcoin. That Bitcoin goes to an address. You transfer that over to Bitrix or Binance to buy, I don't know, ARK, because I like ARK. Uh, that goes to an address on the exchange, a Bitcoin uh, exchange address. And when you buy ARK on that exchange, it goes to an ARK address on that exchange. And then it goes from that ARK address on that exchange to, let's say, your own ARK wallet with your own uh, address. And if you're staking and you're earning a return through proof of stake, then somebody can look at that address and see... Every day, this person's uh, getting a deposit for 0.5 arc, let's say. And you would say, well, yeah, can you tell who that person is? Well, kind of, sort of, maybe, or maybe definitely. If uh, Coinbase has been forced to turn over your records, if I have a starting point, I can follow it until it goes somewhere that I can't see it anymore, and I can pretty much see it anywhere, even in an anonymous currency. I just can't prove that you, in fact, own it. So the onus would be on you to prove that you still own it that you didn't sell it, that you just moved it somewhere. Now, there's a lot of problems here um, for the IRS, for the government. Well, where'd it go? You know, I hope you can help me. I lost my private keys, and it's there, and I didn't sell it. And unless they can show that somebody else actually is that address, then you, you know, can I, can I declare this as a capital loss? It's not recoverable. And there's certain, you know, we do have certain constitutional protections and right to privacy and things like that. The IRS is one of the organizations that can walk the, the way across the, the gray line to the other side of it and begin infringing on your rights. But even they do have some limitations. Their modus operandi is to, is to just seize your assets. And this is the real reason they don't like crypto. They can't. Well, we're seizing it. Go ahead. Here's what you should be doing. You should be keeping records. You should be able to come up with a reasonable basis. You should declare that basis when you make an exchange, and you should pay taxes on it, especially if it's, it was genesis in a place where you paid cash for the original currency that started the chain that they can and someday will trace. Because there's going to come a day where they're going to come down and they're going to have a major crackdown. But let me tell you what they're really looking to do. They're looking for the concrete, easy layup. The person that sits in Coinbase buys Bitcoin. Bitcoin goes up. They sell Bitcoin for cash. They wait. Bitcoin goes down. And they just keep doing that. Because since it's all in one place, once they get that customer record, and they've, they've, Coinbase has had to give away a bunch of records from, I think, 2014 and 2015. And there was certain criteria. It was like a, any transaction, any one transaction over $20,000 was what they ended up being able to get. That's very clear. They can just look at that customer record. Now, because the other side of it is, if a person might owe 500 bucks, how long can they spend going after that $500? Well, the longer they let it go, and the more interest and penalties get compounded on it, the more they can afford in their time. IRS people are judged on their time. They're supposed to be profitable for the government. It, it, you know, it's not like a murder case where it doesn't matter how much we spend, we're going to convict this guy. They're going after money. 
And the current way the law reads is you can't even do an aggregate average. You're supposed to do first in, last out, which means if you sold a Bitcoin, then you should declare the basis based on the first Bitcoin you ever bought. Well, first in, first out of your life or first in, first out of this brokerage account where I bought a Bitcoin 10 years ago, but I sent it over here, and now I bought another Bitcoin that's in this brokerage account that I've exchanged. Well, you see what I mean? It's, it's almost impossible. So this is what the reality is. By declaring a basis that's reasonably defendable and paying the tax on it, you've probably given yourself the greatest level of protection. Now... If you don't want to pay tax on cryptocurrency, then what you want to do is obtain cryptocurrency outside of the cash exchange system. This is the best way to try, I'm not going to promise you anything, but to try to stay away from the IRS. If you're getting paid for your time, money, services, or mining, and you have currency that never touched you know, Coinbase or any other place that touches cash, and you don't have you know, a KYC requirement because you just have a wallet that has cryptocurrency in it. There's almost no way for them to do anything about that. But in the end, if you're buying and selling and trading on an exchange that has your customer records, treat it like stock. That's what you got to do. What they'll do eventually, because people do want this to be a mainstream thing. They will come up with far more reasonable guidelines at some point, and they'll make it easy. What they'll do is they'll force the exchanges to basically send you a form that says what you have to pay tax on. That's what they'll do eventually. But much like stock exchanges in the past, before, because brokers have to do that, brokerage accounts now do that. If you have an E-Trade account and you make 30 or 40 trades, they now give you statements with your basis on it. That was part of the Affordable Care Act, by the way, to, to make sure they earn more tax money. Because what you used to do is you just declared when you bought it and declared what your basis was. And then calculated your profit or loss based on that. You can do what you want with that information. Tax attorney and CPA. All right, let's uh, do another one. This is really disturbing, honestly. This is Brian from Florida. He says, Jack, I wanted to thank you for bringing light to the real issue underlying the school shootings. I live in the Florida panhandle. The past two weeks, my nephew has threatened suicide and is currently under psychiatric care. My neighbor threatened to bring a gun to school and is suspended from school. One of my son's personal friends threatened to bring a gun to school and end his own life in front of an audience, not to hurt anyone else. And another of his friends was arrested for making violent threats. I feel like the recent tragedy in Parkland, Florida, was a primer that set these kids off and showed them how much attention they could get from these statements. I have known all of these kids for years, and I'm quite disturbed at these developments. Dude, I don't know them, and I'm very disturbed that you know that many in one nexus, so to say. Okay, I can't help but extrapolate these circumstances to the rest of the state and possibly the nation as a whole. I feel like the behavior these kids are displaying is a product of society that we live in, and it shows how fragile our children really are. We need to pull our heads out of our asses and quit forcing our kids to go to government schools where if they don't fit in the mold, they're treated as outcasts. I've been listening for about six months, and my wife bought me an MSB membership for Christmas. Thanks for all you do. You show helps me get my head out of my ass, take some internal inter, intentional action, instead of just sitting around grumbling about the current state of the world. Brian from Florida. Brian, um, I wish I could tell you that, I, that I'm not hearing things like this elsewhere. In the news alone, it's a little harder because... You know, that lady from the NRA is right. The, the media loves school shootings. They really do. They're great for ratings. They're great for their agenda, what have you. Um, 
but they don't like there was almost a school shooting. They'll, they'll run that on a local station where it happened for about five minutes to scare you, but they realize since no one got shot, since no one died, since nothing really happened, they'll make a bigger deal out of the fact that some gangbanger shot some other gangbanger and it happened to be in the no school, the no gun zone of the school and call it a school shooting, even though it didn't involve staff of the school, students of the school, anybody connected with the school in any way. It was just in the, it was in the no school, the no gun zone for the school, so therefore it's school shooting. They'll make a bigger deal over that than a kid that said he was going to go blow his own brains out at school and the intervention was successful. They will. Because it doesn't forward their agenda. Their agenda is, we want guns banned. That's the agenda of the media here. That's not conspiracy talk. That's not right-wing nonsense. That's the flat reality. The majority of the people in media want guns banned. They're ignorant about firearms. They don't know anything about guns. They just don't like them. And anything that fits that narrative, they'll run with. Period. What doesn't fit the narrative of not just, we want more guns, but also the narrative of things like, teachers are heroes that don't wear capes. Right? And by golly, Billy, you got to get a good education and go to college. That is part of their agenda as well. Keeping the cogs and the sprockets in the machine turning. If one breaks, we throw it away and stick a new part in. That's how they view society. Period. So, if we actually pull away the scab of the wound and see the festering gangrene under the wound that shows us that our schools are being run like minimum security prisons, and therefore the students in those schools are treating each other like prisoners do in such a system, and that today we have a world where those kids can't even get away. They can't go home and have peace. And I've heard people say, well, if your kid's being bullied... And they're getting bullied on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or whatever. Just don't let them have an account there. What I said to that guy was, look, I bet you if I took Photoshop and Photoshopped a picture that looked like a monkey was having its way with you, having sex with you from behind. I used a different word okay, that I don't usually use on the air. And I sent that out on the Internet that even if you weren't on Facebook, and I was, and I put it out there on Facebook, eventually someone that knew you, if we were in the same circle of people, would tell you about it and probably show it to you. And you know that was going on. And I'm not saying that's what happened to these kids, but it's something like that. It's some sort of tormenting. So, and, I mean, again, today, I mean, there's, I have a friend that's, like, addicted to making Photoshop stuff, and he does it all on his phone with, with plugins or uh, apps. Like, and if, you know, if a guy in his 40s can do that, what do you think a 16-year-old can do? This is just one example of the type of torment these kids are going through. And... It's all of it. Everybody, again, people keep wanting to have a thing. It's, there's not, you know, there's too many single mothers and not enough male influence. That's a factor. It's these kids are on drugs. And I, and I don't mean the kind that come from the street. I mean the kind that comes from doctors. That is a factor. It is that these kids are weak and they, 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 they're just, one guy said, they're just pussies. I said that today. I said, talk about a man with a paper asshole. You really do. Right? How did they get that way? Did they get that way by themselves? Did all of a sudden children start being born weaker than they were in the past? If, if, if this generation is weak, we get the blame. And they are, and we do. And I don't have an easy answer. And that's why no one wants to have this conversation. Because when you actually look at this, you realize, like, 
this is like pulling the scab off of the arm and looking in and seeing gangrene and really like, we got to start we got to start cutting away flesh to fix this. We might have to have to do a lot more damage to the patient to save the patient. We might have to cut the freaking arm off. And even though it's it's it's, it's festering down below the elbow, it's spreading so fast, we might have to cut it off at the shoulder. That's that's how bad this is. And let me tell you something, parents. You have to protect, if you can't get your kids out of these schools, you have to protect your children. You have to protect your children. I've also heard people say, well, our children deserve. You know what your child deserves? What you're able to legitimately provide to them and what they earn for themselves. That's what your child deserves, nothing more, because that's what everybody deserves. We deserve what the people that want us to have are able to legitimately provide for us and what we were able to earn through our own actions. That's what we deserve. You don't deserve somebody else somewhere being forced to give you something, and that's part of this problem too. And there is no way to put a Band-Aid on a gangrenous wound and fix it. You cannot dump peroxide on a gangrenous wound and properly bandage it and fix it. You got to go in and you got to take out the rotted flesh. You know the number one way they do this? With maggots. I'm dead serious, even today. They put maggots in a wound like that, and a maggot will only eat the dead flesh. And it's got to go. What's the dead flesh in our system? The dead flesh is where we have children in schools with three to 5,000 kids crammed into one school. The dead flesh is when we have kids at recess, and the damn teachers are all together up against a wall hanging out in their own little clique instead of dispersed throughout the children to pay attention to what the hell's going on. That's part of the sickness. That's part of the rotting flesh. And they're not going to fix it. And we need to keep pushing this conversation so that some of it can get better. But you are responsible for the safety of your children. And if something's wrong in your school, then I'm going to give you the solution. You don't go down ranting and raving and screaming and saying you're going to kick somebody's ass. That will get you arrested. But you send a very clear message to the administration of that school. I am like a pit bull. I will not go away. I will not shut up. I will not stop calling you. I will not stop I will not stop showing up here. I will demand that if this problem is affecting my child, you make the problem go away. If my child's being bullied, I don't care if you have to station the resource officer on the back of the kid doing it, you will fix it or I won't go away. Because the people that run these schools not saying bad, good, and different. I'm saying the truth. They are bureaucrats. And people that are bureaucrats in a bureaucracy have a lot of shit to deal with. And I'll tell you what they do. They prioritize things based on, will this be a problem for me? And if you don't make it their problem, they will focus on the things that are their problem. You have to make it the problem that is like a cancer to where they can't deal with it anymore, so they have to solve the problem. If that means my kid has to go to a different school, then you're going to help me make that happen. If the other kid or group of kids has to go to another school, then you're going to make that happen. If they have to get suspended, then you're going to make that happen. If they have to change class and the kid's on this side of the school, whatever it is, we're going to work this out and we're going to make that happen. And I also believe there is this point too. There is a point where if I think somebody's really harming my, my like I don't have kids now, my grandkids, right? Physically, and the school won't fix it, I'm going to talk to your parents. 
I'm going to go talk to the parents. And, and I'm not saying this is first, second, or even fifth action. But there is a point where, you know what, your kid is physically assaulting my child. I can't punch your 14-year-old kid in the face. But I can punch you in the face. So from now on, since I've tried everything else, every time your child touches my child, I'm going to come touch you. Now, I think that needs to be like the 99th solution out of 100 different solutions. But it needs to be there. And if nothing else, your kid needs to know that it's there. But again, if there's a problem, and I've, I've talked to teachers that have this problem that won't get it through their damn heads. I have one teacher. The kid just doesn't listen in class. Send them to the principal. I do, and she sends them right back. Well, send them back again. She, she is exactly the same dynamic. But, you know, you didn't make it her problem enough. Send them with a note. Do not send this child back to my classroom without taking corrective action. I have done everything within my limits. This child is not welcome in my classroom until you take further action. Well, she'll send them right back. Send them back again. Just keep sending them back. I'm sorry. I, I don't see that anything was done. You're going back to the principal. Well, she said to come here. I don't care. At least she's walking back and forth all day. He's out of the classroom. Make it the problem, and then they will address the problem. Bureaucracies, that's the only, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? There's a reason that's a cliche, because it's true. But in spite of some of the anger and stuff coming out there, please, we, we need to keep this going. Keep this momentum going. Write letters to the editor of newspapers. The, 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 the key message here is the school shootings and the four to 5,000 or more suicides a year by young people, 24 and under, are absolutely the same problem. And there's a systemic problem in our systems of education and the way we educate our children and bullying and the way we are addressing problems and not teaching them resiliency that is leading to this phenomenon. And we need to realize that for every one kid that gets shot, two to three hundred will kill themselves. And it's the same problem. And we can't stop saying that. And you've got to resist this damn need people have to try to say, well, all the school shooters except one uh, were from single parent households and they didn't have a biological father in their life. So what? So what? Is that true? Of the 5,000 last year that hung themselves or slit their wrists or shot themselves? Is that true of all of them too? See, because if you stay on the problem, if you stay on that one simple truth, this system is creating children that don't want to live anymore. That's the truth. If you'll stay on that, then you will not get sidelined and pulled into all these little side fights, and you'll stay on. We have to correct this problem. And I'll tell you, it's as important as this. There are parents that because we stay on this message, will pull their kids out of school. And they'll save a life or multiple lives by doing that. And every one time that happens, that's a good thing. There are parents who will become a pain in the ass of a principal or vice principal or dean to the point in which they will do their damn job and stop this abuse in our system, and that'll save a life or two or multiples. And every time that happens, it's a good thing. Won't fix the whole problem, but we have to at least look at the gangrene in the wound. We have to stop hiding from it. We have to because let me tell you something. But it's it's they don't have biological fathers. It's the drugs. It's this. Whenever we pull one thing out, what we're saying is, I see the wound. I smell the stink of rotting flesh. 
but I don't want to admit it because I know if I admit it, I have to admit that I do have some things I can do and I do have some part in this. And I do have some level. I can't separate myself from it and say, it's over there and I'm over here. That's why it's uncomfortable. But we can't stop. We can't stop. So this next one, I, I, I don't know who sent it in because it's vanished from my Outlook. And I, I don't understand because I haven't cleaned out my deleted items file today. And I can't find it even searching for the word hops in TSPC, which was in the subject line. But somebody asked me about growing hops in a food forest. And, you know, what, what where would I plant hops in a food forest? Um, let's start off with what makes hops grow. Uh, moderate climates, lots of moisture, and humidity. So where in your food forest? The place that gets, you know, six, eight hours of sun, but it's maybe a little bit filtered. Uh, it is a, a, a moist, not soaking wet area, and there is a place for the hops to climb. That's where. That could be up a tree. Uh, it could be, and he, he mentioned something about, you know, a conventional kind of hop pole type thing. Yeah, you could do that, whatever, whatever you want. And certainly that forest ecosystem, if we find the right solar exposure and the right microclimate, then, you know, we can probably do better with hops than the commercial producer can do. In a small amount. And when I say small amount, a small number of plants. Uh, we, you know, that's the whole concept of food forestry is we can produce food, fibers, medicines, herbs, etc. in greater abundance, but not in a total production of one thing beyond a commercial production system. A, you know, a, a grower in Washington that's commercially growing hops and a system designed to grow hops is going to outproduce you per acre. But your one plant may outproduce their one plant, depending on where you live. If you live here in Texas, it's actually very difficult to grow hops. So what I wanted to throw in here is... What we've learned uh, through the efforts of some of my friends on growing hops in places where they don't grow well, they do fantastic in an aquaponics system. I mean, explosive. And the best uh, system in an aquaponics system to, to grow them in is flood and drain, or ebb and flow, call it what you want to. But they, because it's moist, but it dries out, because every time the cycle, you get air in there. It keeps the root zone cool, so even though you're in a hotter climate than it would prefer, they're better off, and you're near water, so you have a humidity rise. So I would say, you know, get some rhizomes, pick some places that seem right, put them in the ground, see how they do. But if you, because I tried it here and it didn't work, I've got alkaline soil, I got clay soil, I got rock, I got very very dry periods. It just didn't work. Okay, um, but when my buddies down in Austin popped a couple rhizomes into an ebb and flow bed, that an ebb and flow bed that still had most of the surface open to grow other shit in. Because the vines were trailed up in a way, and they got a ass load of hops out of just one bed. So I think that's probably, if you're not in a hop growing zone where they naturally do well, that would be your best bet is to look at doing it with aquaponics. Next, got a couple of little segments for you here at the end of the day. Um, one I'm calling the saga of the F3P, F350 and modern indentured servitude. So Friday evening, I'm sitting here finishing up my day. And my farmhand comes in. He says, uh, do you want me to go get you know, a load of mulch? I said, yep, just like I told you yesterday. Didn't change. He said, your, your truck's on like a quarter tank. Should I, should I put fuel in your truck? And I almost said no, and God, I wish I did. And I said, you do understand my truck's a diesel, right? And he said, yes. I said, so you understand you put diesel in a diesel vehicle, right? He goes, yeah. I said, then go ahead and fill it. 
Oh, about 20 minutes later, I got a phone call, and he sounded like he had killed somebody. I thought he got in a wreck and killed somebody. And he was stuck in the middle of this really nasty road with the vehicle completely shut down because he put gas in my F-350. And I still don't know the prognosis yet. They called me today. There's a, a, They've drained it and cleaned out and rechanged the filters and all that. And there's something that broke, and they're going to fix that, and that's another 700 bucks. And uh, the best-case scenario, I'm going to get out of this for one to $2,000. The worst-case scenario is this, it's, it's so destroyed uh, that it, it may not be worth investing in this 2005 vehicle to try to fix it, you know. Um So, hence, modern indentured servitude. Somebody said on Facebook, Monday's show will be about modern slavery. And a little bit, it is. Um, so, I talked to the guy and tried to calm him down. It's going to be all right. And, but I did tell him, I said, you know, you're going to pay for this. And I'm not going to, like, take your paycheck away. You're not going to work for free. But, you know, we're going to do a payroll deduction until this is caught up. And, and, and I think you need to do that, feel right about it, because this was a stupid thing to do. My bigger concern, though, and this is back to my conversation with my kids, he's just mentally shot over this. I mean, he I had him working Saturday, and I wanted him to do some more work, and I sent him home because I honestly couldn't look at him anymore. And I don't mean because I was mad. I mean because I couldn't calm him down. I couldn't get him into a right frame of mind. This is the problem. This is the problem we have in our society today with our children. That a person can make a mistake, and I even had this like 15-minute Grandpa Spearco discussion with him. I know I was calm because I had him walk around with me while I was sowing seeds on my swales. There is no place in the world where I am a kinder, gentler Jack Spearco than when I am watching fine seed in a rainbow-shaped pattern as it drops onto soil where it is going to grow. And I talked to him. I said, do you know what resiliency is? And he said, I don't know. So I explained what resiliency was, like I did with you guys today. And I said, you know, you need to learn some resiliency in your life and all. And this is an opportunity. And, it, you know, a man is not judged by his mistakes, but by how he responds to them. And all of these things that, you know, would be, I wish when I, my son was, was 16, I knew to say. And the thing is, I know that we did pretty good together, my son and I, when he was 16. Even though I didn't know to say these things. And I know if I knew to say those things, how much better they would have worked than the things I did say. And I know this guy does have his dad in his life, and his dad's a pretty good guy. He's 19 and my son's 28. This is not even 10 years. And I see this incredible falling off of an ability to recover. And if I thought he was just you know, a person with some issues, and he wasn't representative of the total, I wouldn't be so concerned. But in what I'm hearing about people hurting themselves and all, and I'm worried this kid's going to hurt himself over some stupid mistake he made on my farm. And I'm like, you know, if I'm okay with it, if I'll get over it, you need to be able to get over it too. And I, I don't know what to do for this, this, this group of young people. And, and, and I'm not for picking on them. This this shit has to stop with they're all a bunch of whistles. But we made them. We made them. It's our fault. The question isn't so much why, but what. What do we do? What do we say? What type of programs do we develop? I think we need to be developing, like, we need to put 
the minds of Americans together. And I don't care if your little project only helps five kids. Great. That's five kids that weren't going to get help any other way. I think permaculture is one of the greatest things we can do to help our children. I really do. I think, you know, maker spaces is something we can do too. I think when people actually accomplish something, then they feel like they've done and they can see a result. And, but you got to find what that individual is looking for. Because you can do something and get a result, but if you don't care about it, you might as well not have done it in many ways. And I think these kids, they need a sense of purpose. They need to know that other people believe in them. But I'm really afraid about our future. Because I'm thinking like, okay, in 20 years, when I'm 65... These people are going to be in charge of everything. We owe it to them and ourselves to fix this shit. And we can't, again, throw a single switch or name a single problem and say it's all this. Put God back in schools. That's the one I keep hearing. Really? Which God? Jesus Christ. That's who. Well, what if I don't believe in Jesus Christ? You're going to force me to, to be part of your faith through the force of the state? I'm sorry. I didn't sign up for that. I don't believe that conforms to constitutionality at all. Right? What if we put, you know, what if we put the deist God in schools? How would you feel about that? What if you're Christian and we put the Catholic version of God in schools, but you're Protestant and we have, you know, communion on Fridays? We'll be okay with that, right? You see what I'm saying? Like the reason we don't have church in school is because we live in a diverse society where people can worship as they please, which is good. I do think that we didn't put something ethical back into our schools. That's a problem. A sense of purpose. We can do that without religion. But even that's not going to fix it. There's a hundred little things going on here. But I do know this. If you judge a person by what they produce, people my age, a little younger and a little older, we're failing in what we're producing. As a society, I know many of you are fantastic parents with fantastic children. I've met them. I just wish they were the rule rather than the exception. Anyway, I'll keep you guys updated. And I'm still waiting to hear back from the, the, the Pet Boys location as my truck as to what what the next step's going to be. Lastly, my kitchen update. You probably heard some noises. They're out there uh, fixing the roof that they screwed up, and they've gotten delayed by rain and their own problems. But overall, my contractor's done a pretty decent job, and it uh, looks like this week we'll be through with things. I'm supposed to have my grill up and running today. The plumber did not plumb the line long enough, and uh, one of the workers promised me they would have my grill up and running today. It is not up and running yet, but soon it will be. And we're getting to that point where we can see the finish line with the outdoor kitchen. And on that note, it's probably going to be Saturday, I'm thinking, Saturday or Sunday, that my buddy David and I are going to do the initial filming of the first episodes of a show that we're going to have on YouTube called Biltong for Breakfast. And if you'd like to be part of that and know more about it as we launch it, you can go to BiltongForBreakfast.com, and uh, we look forward to bringing that to you. I think it'll be a fun thing, and we've both been putting a lot of effort into kind of upping our game a little bit, and our goal is going to be to do a show that's not about bacon brownies and cupcakes and cookies ever, ever. We're going to make food, real food, meat, vegetables, stuff like that. A lot of it on the grill, a lot of wild game uh, a lot of free-range stuff, a lot of stuff out of the backyard garden, a lot of forage stuff, a lot of bartered stuff. Try to keep that theme into it, but also for it to be something you can do. 
You know, if I do something like we're going to do tagine quail, I guarantee you that's going to be a thing. I got to work on that one a little bit before it gets video because I want to have these down when we do it. But when I do that, I'm going to say, look, look, just, just use chicken if you don't quail. I want it to always be like, I'm using venison. You can use, here's a cut of beef to use. And I want it to be something you can do at home. I want, I want to, uh, to empower this. And we were talking about, you know, children. And I think, like, if we were teaching them skills so they felt valuable to themselves, we'd be helping them. And one of the most valuable things you can teach kids is cooking. And it's amazing. That kid that won't eat his vegetables, he'll eat his vegetables if you help cook them. So hopefully we'll be able to do some stuff like that and bring kids into it and some other things too. Uh, I'm not going to say it's going to be family friendly because it's going to be me and David. So there, there will probably on occasion be a word or two uh, that some people would prefer not to hear. But overall, it'll be good, clean fun with the occasional four-letter word, I think is how we'll, we'll, we'll go about that. Otherwise, it just wouldn't be real. We're not going to get together, teach you to make the perfect dirty martini, and drink two or three of them while we're cooking and not let you know an adult word or two slip. It's just not who we are. Anyway, with that, we have wrapped things up. And if uh, you want to support us, a way you can do that other than becoming a member is simply by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go there, you do your online shopping. No matter what you buy, you help support us. But you can also see all the reviews I've done on Amazon as well there. And today I have an item for review called the Incuview. I-N-C-U-V-I-E-W. All-in-one automatic egg incubator. Brother, that's what it is. All-in-one. You set the temperature on it, it stays there. You make sure you keep some water in it so the humidity is where you want it on the needle, and it stays there. You tell it how long it's supposed to incubate those eggs, it turns them every day, three times, six times, however many times you tell it to, and it's easy to program. The instruction sheet is two page, one page front and back is the entire instruction sheet comes with it. And it knows if I'm going to be you know, turning these eggs for, let's say they're ducks, for 28 days, on day 24, stop turning them. I'm not even sure if that's the right day. I don't need to know. It knows. And I'm telling you, it is the best consumer-grade incubator I've seen. It's about $176. Bucks. Um, I did 26 eggs with it three times for a total of 78 eggs went in it when I was doing chickens. So three times in a row, 26 eggs each time, total of 78 uh, eggs went into the incubator, 76 hatched. I know you don't count your chickens before they're hatched, but that's pretty damn good, huh? And it's lightweight, it's durable. If I was going to be hatching, you let's say, you know, a hundred eggs at a time or something, I would get multiples of this before I spent money on a big, high-end, expensive one that would cost a lot more to be able to do a hundred eggs at a time. And since it's lightweight and durable and easy to ship, and it will fit in the larger priority if it fits a chips box, you can ship it for about ten bucks. So if you and a couple friends each need an incubator once a year, you can do a product share with this really easily. And when, when Tom's done, he sends it to Dave. Uh, I personally, Nick Ferguson wanted to borrow it. I had Dorothy pack it up and send it to him. He hatched some chickens and some ducks and just flipped around and sent it back to me. So it's a great product, and it's a good time of year to be getting you know that, that flock increase going on and, and what have you. So if you need to incubate eggs, check it out. Um, you know, I used a, a product called the Hovabator, which is probably the most popular incubator out there. It's made out of styrofoam. It's got a little red stat to set the temperature, a little window to look in. I probably hatched hundreds, if not a couple thousand reptile eggs in one of those. It works. It's fiddly. you got to jack with it. you got to check it. you got to stay on it. This thing, you set it and almost forget it. Not quite, but almost forget it. 
Just pay attention to humidity, add water when you need to, and it'll do the rest for you. The Incubu all-in-one automatic egg incubator available, reviewed today at tspaz.com, and you can always help us just by doing your online shopping at tspaz. You're going to buy something online, go there first. That's all I ask. It'll take a couple extra seconds, and you support the work we do. Painless way to support the Survival Podcast, the show you listen to every day. With that, that brings us to our song of the day. We are starting a week, and we're calling the Gender Bender Week. No, it's not some social justice warrior nonsense. It's going to be a fun week. Uh, this is where we take a song that's best known by an artist that's either male or female and play for you a very well-done cover by someone of the opposite gender. In this case, Unchained Melody, uh, which, of course, was, was made most famous by the Righteous Brothers. In fact, I always thought the Righteous Brothers were the source of this song I, because it was such a big deal. It's been in so many movies and stuff like that with them uh, singing it. But this song actually first appeared in a 1955 movie called Unchained starring the former football player Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch. The movie takes place in a prison and the song was written for the movie to reflect the mood of the prisoners as they wait for time to pass. Alex North wrote the music, Hi Zarrett wrote the lyrics, and a black singer named Todd Duncan sang the version in the movie. Duncan went on to become a popular vocal instructor. And, and I'm not going to read it all. I mean, this I usually get a lot of information off Song Facts. This is the longest history of a song I've ever seen on Song Facts. I'm not saying it is the longest one, period. But it's pretty fascinating, all of the different people who did this song, the history of this song, how some of the changes were made and certain decisions were made about it. But again, the big you know, big group you think of when you think of this song is the Righteous Brothers. Well, guess who we're going to listen to sing it today? Heart. 1976 Barracuda album had a cover of this song on it. And I, you know, I grew up, I loved Heart. Especially the 70s heart, where the girls were a little bit better looking. Just, I don't want to offend anybody, but honestly, they, you know, come on. Um, and uh, I just, I do not remember this cover. And they do it beautifully. So here you go. This is a great song. We talked about some deep issues today. I, I always saw this song as being basically a love ballad. Well, it kind of is, but it's a love ballad where the the object that's loved is liberty and the regaining of liberty that had been lost through mistake. I'm going to listen to this maybe a little bit differently than I've listened to it before, and I hope you do too. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.